So good morning, y'all. Hey, that was kind of weak. Good morning, y'all. I want to encourage, that was better. I want to encourage y'all as well, uh, too, because all of us, particularly being so close to Fort Benning, that we all, I would imagine, have friends or family or a husband or a wife of a friend that uh, that has given their life in defense of our country. And so I really would, I mean, I have family. So I really would encourage y'all to love on those folks uh, today. Love on those folks tomorrow. Actually, just love on them all the time because it is is a super big deal and it's a very meaningful, meaningful day and, and that reflection is really, is painful for folks. So just give them a hug, give them a phone call if they, if they don't live here, but give them a phone call, give them a text or something, but love on them. So I want to, before we get started this morning, <clears throat> I want to give you two little, they're kind of tied together, two little announcements. And if you, yeah, on the 14th, you know, this all really kind of came about because somebody said to, to me, and I want to say it was me and uh, Stephen Fortenberry, around Easter time, they said, golly, I can't believe Easter's canceled. And I'm like, what? Easter is not, well, you can't cancel Easter. Jesus ran out of the grave alive. That You can't cancel Easter, right? So what we're going to do, because we, we sat there and we talked about it, and we said, we really, y'all, we should be celebrating the resurrection every day of our lives when it's all said and done. And so we, we said, we're still going to do, and if you're kind of new to our church family, for five or six years, we have had a pretty big Easter celebration on, on the land that we own, which is right down Flat Rock Road as you cross the rails to trails on the left. And so we said, well, you know what? We should be doing this every day anyway. So we're going to have a big Easter celebration on the 14th of June. Um, we're going to do kind of the same thing that we would have done had we been able to be out there uh, in April for Easter. And so that's on the 14th of June, you know. We're going to have Easter eggs, we're going to have, you know, food vendors, we're going to have worship, we're going to have a, a message. <clears throat> anyway, stuff for kids, so I want you all invite, and if you're watching online, come out there, you know, on the 14th, and, and I, I encourage all of you all to come to kick that week off because you realize that, you know, there was blood shed on that cross, and it, sort of in remembrance of that as well, we are uh, on the 8th of June, which is the Monday before, we're having a blood drive here at the church. It's the second one we've done in the last, I don't know, maybe eight, six or eight weeks. But we're doing it again. We need, we, we, we need 40 people at the end of the day. Because, y'all, there's life in the blood. That's what happened on that cross. There's eternal life in the blood that Christ shed on that cross. And there is a blood shortage in our country. And so we're having a Red Cross blood drive over on the kids' side over there on Monday the 8th. So go to Red Cross's uh, website. I think it's redcross.org. I hope I'm right. If not, search, Google it and you'll find it. But you can find us. You can search by the zip code and you can find, they, they have them in there by date, and you can sign up and register for that. So I encourage you to do that. Now, um, we're starting today, and I'm very, very excited. I've wanted to preach through the book of Romans for a long time. And so we're starting a series today, and the name of the series is Unashamed. And so we're going to be in this New Testament book of Romans. It's the sixth book in your uh, Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. And, 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 and I want to give you a little background on Romans, and then we're going to jump into the message. 
So Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote the book of Romans. Paul was a Jew. Culturally, religiously, by birth, by choice, Paul was a Jew. But Paul was a Roman citizen as well. He's from a little town called Tarsus. And we don't know much about Paul's childhood. Really don't know much about his childhood at all. But Paul shows up in Acts chapter 7. And he shows up when Stephen, the Apostle Stephen, is stoned to death. And when Paul shows up, he's kind of putting his stamp of approval on the stoning of Stephen. And then a couple chapters later in Acts, in Acts chapter 9, uh, Paul meets the risen Christ on, the, on what's called the Damascus Road. He's on the way to Damascus to hunt down Christians. And he meets the risen Christ on that road. Uh, his life totally changed, got turned upside down. Uh, and he got saved. Paul got saved. And I tell you, Susan and I have watched, uh, started I think about 10 days ago, watching a series called The Chosen. How many of y'all have seen any of The Chosen? If you hadn't seen it, it's a very cool show. You get the app on your phone, the The Chosen uh, app. So we started watching this like week before last. And in, in episode three, Mary of Magdala, which we know is Mary Magdalene, she has this quote, and this is her in The Chosen, and this is the quote. She said, I was, I was one way, and now I'm completely different, and the thing that happened in between was him. What an incredible, incredible quote. What a great line. That's Paul, y'all. Paul, this Christian hunter who ends up writing like two-thirds of the New Testament, including Romans. And so Paul wrote Romans. He's on a mission uh, missionary trip. He's in Corinth in about AD 57, and he writes the, the letter of Romans to the Roman church, to the believers in Rome. And Romans is the really the longest um, and most systematically thought out of all of Paul's letters. And Paul gives us the theme, I believe, really the theme of the letter in chapter 1. And so that's in fact going to be our focus today is Romans chapter 1. Let, let's pray real quick that the Lord will bless what we're doing, and then we'll jump into the message. Lord, we know that your word will never return void. Ever, ever, it will never return void. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless this time today and in the, over the next several uh, weeks as we walk through your son Paul's, your, his letter to this church, uh, this body of believers in Rome. Lord, that you would, you would bring people to the foot of your cross through the preaching of your word, and particularly in the letter to the Romans in Jesus' name, amen. So look, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, particularly the first uh, 15, first 16 verses of Romans 1, and super particularly in verse 16. So let's quickly work our way through the, the first 15 verses, and then we'll jump on verse 16. So verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So right off the bat, we know that the writer the, the, the human writer of Romans is Paul, and that he considers himself a servant. The Greek is doulos. He's a doulos, which is really a slave. And so he is sold out. Paul is sold out to his master, Jesus Christ. He is called and he's set apart, consecrated. He's consecrated uh, and set apart for the gospel of his master. And so Paul kind of begins this letter sort of given his credentials, because he had not been to Rome, to give his credentials to the folks there. And so he says, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, you, the folks in Rome, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So these next sort of four or five verses he kind of lays out the gospel a little bit. You know, the prophets had written and spoken about the promises uh, about the son and that the son was a descendant of David like those prophets knew that he must be. And then the resurrection, Christ's resurrection, kind of declares him, y'all, to be the son. And then through the son, all of them and all of us receive grace. And Paul says, and that includes you. You are called to belong to Jesus. Verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Whenever a letter you read in the scriptures, somebody referred to as a saint, that this letter is written to believers. And so to, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So their believers in Rome are who this letter is targeted to. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And so this is Paul's typical kind of thanksgiving and that he shows in lots of letters uh, that he writes. But he includes a super crazy kind of bold statement to the folks in Rome, to the believers in this church in Rome, and that is that everybody all over the place knows about their faith. He goes on, verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He lets them know that they occupy a lot of his prayer time and that he really, really wants to get to Rome and to be in Rome and to hang out with them and to preach the word to them. Verse 11, for I long to see you, Paul says, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Y'all, iron sharpens iron, and he believes that these folks in Rome are super solid believers and that getting together with them would be a win-win. He goes on, verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. And barbarians are just non-Greeks. So he's really saying to Greeks and to non-Greeks. Both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He really, really, really wants to get to Rome and preach the gospel to these folks. And y'all, I believe that all of this, these first 15 verses, really are just to tee up verse 16. I think verse 16 may very well be the theme of the whole letter to the Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Think about those words, y'all. Think about the the gravity of those words. Y'all, if you travel 150 miles northeast of where we are right now, up the road to a football game, you're going to find yourself in Athens, Georgia. 
God's country. That was for you. God's country. And you're going to find at this game a sea of red and black. And when the games in, in Sanford Stadium sell out, which is almost always, there's 92,746 folks in Sanford Stadium. And I remember one time we were up there in 2013, it was September the 28th, and uh, we were playing LSU. And LSU was undefeated, and Georgia had lost one game, and we had terrible seats in the 600 level. It don't get no higher in Sanford Stadium than the 600 level. And so we were, I don't know, we were in section 603, I think, something like that. But the 600 level in Sanford Stadium is so high and so steep, you feel like you're going to fall out of the seat. It's so steep. They're terrible. Anyway, the, 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 the stadium is just this sea of red and black, except where we were sitting because section 600 through 611 are typically the visitor's section, right? Matter of fact, that, that time, Susan kind of wouldn't even sit up there with me. It was so high, she got queasy, and I don't know where you went, but you went somewhere, and I'm sitting up there. And so this is the visitor's seat, and so you had this ugly purple and gold like everywhere all over those sections in the 600 level, and, and the obnoxious purple and gold stuff. And so when you had this 88-plus thousand dog fans going berserk, Hooting and hollering, the folks that are in this purple and gold are, are not hooting and hollering. And when the purple people are hooting and hollering, then the red people are not hooting and hollering, right? Each one's pulling for their own team. The folks in purple, although infinitely smaller in number, I don't know, probably four-ish thousand folks up there, but they were focused on their Tigers, their LSU Tigers, and they're screaming and they're spurring their team on. Christians are unique and different and exist here on the planet to root and cheer and go berserk over the cause of Christ. And so when these LSU Tiger fans come to Athens, they're not ashamed. Like, they're just not ashamed. And I can tell you for sure that when dog fans go to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, absolutely, positively not ashamed. Both... Um, unashamedly claim their team and lock their eyes and their hearts and their minds on victory. That's what, that's what we do. And so, by the way, the good guys won that game 44 to 41. But back we did. Back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Arguably, that, that, that verse is really the theme of this whole letter. It's one of the greatest summaries of the gospel ever written. It's crystal clear declaration of God's power to save every single person who believes, regardless of nationality, regardless of national origin, color, creed, race, you know, condition, personality, whatever it is, everyone is everyone. And this verse makes it so clear why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, and it makes it clear why y'all, why me and you ought not to be ashamed. And I want to give you two unmistakable reasons why. Number one, if you don't have a worship God, I really want you to have one. If you don't have one, if you'd raise your hand, somebody will get one in your hands. But number one reason is this. It is the, the gospel. It is the good news from God himself. 
Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the good news from God himself. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Euangelion is the Greek word, and it gospels, translated gospel, and it really means good news. It really means the best news ever. It means there ain't no news that could be as good as the good news of euangelion, the gospel. It is the good news that God has given to the world, and he wants proclaimed to the world. And you know the fact, that fact that it had been given from God made Paul unashamed of it. Now I want to define for you a little bit what I, what I, what I mean by ashamed. And I mean that Paul ain't scared. That's a southern word, S-K-E-E-R-E-D. Paul ain't scared of this. He's not, he didn't hide like behind some rock. He was not like hiding behind his thoughts and his beliefs. He was not scared of it. And yet Paul had ample, really plenty of reason probably to be ashamed. Number one, Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Jew, a group of people that in that day, particularly in a very Gentile area, that thought that Jews were despicable, were, were subhuman, were worthy of being cursed and worthy to be enslaved. So you would think that Paul would at least be apprehensive a little bit around non-Jews. And in the flesh, I would imagine that he had a temptation to shy away a little bit in his flesh. So number one, Paul's a Jew. Number two is this, the gospel that Paul preached Man, it was just too far-fetched. I want you all to think about it. It's just too far-fetched. That a member, a male member of a despised clan of people was said to be the savior of the whole world. That he was not only a man, but that he was actually God as well. That he, he could actually forgive sin. And that his horrific death not just death, but his horrific death, it wasn't just that he died, but that he died for other men and women, that he died as a substitute for other men and women. And then the icing on the cake that Paul's gospel, he's trying to preach these people, was that this guy, this member of this despised clan of folks, that he, that he actually was raised from the dead, that he was really dead, that he was actually raised from the dead, and that that resurrection was proof that he was the son of God. What? Like, does that, does that even make any sense? And so it was just too far-fetched. Number two, number three is this. Number three, reason why we would think that Paul would at least be apprehensive, if not completely ashamed is that he was rejected all the time. And he was not just rejected, y'all, by individuals. He was rejected by whole communities of people. The big boys, they put him in jail in Philippi. They ran him out of Thessalonica. They threatened his very life in Berea. The, the, the Greeks, who were the intellectuals of the day, they, they said that his everything that Paul said, they said was just stupid. Like, you're just stupid. Nobody with half a brain would ever believe one word that you're saying, Paul. And so there were several times, y'all, in Paul's life where it just would have made sense for him to just run off like the wind and just start life over, to just reboot his life, but he didn't. He didn't because he was not ashamed. Now, I'm going to tell you, many folks today 
They are ashamed. Folks fear rejection and they fear ridicule and they fear loss of recognition and position and maybe even people fear their livelihood. There's a fear of intellectual shame. In other words, like you don't actually believe that crazy story, do you? You don't actually believe that this man actually came back to life, do you? You are way smarter than that. Y'all, those are the exact words that my mama said to me on January 17th, 2001, when I told her and my dad that I was a Christian. So there's a fear of intellectual shame. Like somehow you couldn't believe that if you had half a brain. Like you gotta be stupid to believe that. So there's a legit fear of intellectual, to be shamed intellectually. And then there's a fear of social shame. There's a bunch of folks, y'all, I'm telling you, that are scared that if they accept and proclaim the gospel, that they'll be mocked and they'll be rejected and they'll be ignored and their family will put them to the curb and, and they won't be invited to this and they won't be invited to that and that their friends will all think they're a buzzkill. Anybody ever call you a buzzkill? You're a Christian. You're a buzzkill. You're going to ruin our get-together. You're going to ruin our pool party, whatever it is. But let me tell you what the scripture says what the scripture says about that fear. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you are insulted for the... You know what? You ought to wear it like a badge of honor, right? 1 Peter chapter 4 is what, Paul, what Peter says. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And then 2 Timothy in chapter 1, Paul really nails it. For God gave us a spirit, what? Not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And because you have a spirit of power and love and self-control, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Nor, now think about this. Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, who's a young pastor, and Paul's trying to teach Timothy how to shepherd a group of believers. That's the context of First and Second Timothy. And so he's telling Timothy, don't you be ashamed of who you are. Don't you be ashamed of the gospel of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling and not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So number one, Paul was not and me and you should not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the good news from God himself. And then reason number two is this. We're going to land on this for a bit is that the gospel is the power of God to save. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to save. Verse 16 goes on and says, For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God, dunami, is the Greek word, dunami. And it's not just any old power. It's not Ed's power. It's not Susan's power. It's not Richard's power. It's not political power. It is the almighty power of a holy God. And it is explosive. And it is ginormous. Y'all know that word, ginormous. It is ginormous. It is massive. It is, it is this unimaginable power, willful power. It's the Lord's willful power. And, and it is intrinsic 
to the object of whom it is spoken about. Now, think about that statement. That power is intrinsic to the one of whom it is spoken about. In other words, it is an attribute of God. It is really integral and it is part of, of, of his godness. And we term that power omnipotence. And omnipotence is unlimited power. His power has no bounds. Y'all, I can't even get my arms around trying to understand what that means, that his power has no boundaries, right? And I want you, this is what will blow you away. This totally blew me away this week. When you take God's steadfast love, his unfailing love, we got the salvation equation up there. Yeah, that was a hashtag that. I just kind of made that up on the fly. The salvation equation, when you take... God's unfailing, limitless, steadfast love, and you combine that with his limitless power, the result is salvation. And me and you become objects of both of those. Both his power and his love. Salvation. Oh my goodness, this whole idea of salvation, it blows me away. I'm telling you, I wake up every morning, I can't believe I'm saved. Because it doesn't make any sense. So in that word that is translated in, uh, in, in verse 16, for, the word for, the power for salvation. Here's what's jam-packed into that word for. Intention and aim and purpose and for the sake of. And so what you see is the power of God is intended for salvation. The power of God is aimed at salvation. Its purpose is salvation. His power is for the sake of salvation. It is like, y'all, it is like God saying, guys, I got unlimited power, and because of the crazy, amazing, steadfast love that I have for you, I'm sovereign, and I have purposed to offer you the gift of salvation. Let's, I want to talk about that for a minute. Like, it's, it blows me away, though. Just the whole idea of salvation. Do me and you, like, do we really understand the breadth and the width and the height and the depth of what it really means? Fundamentally, salvation, soteria, what it really means is deliverance. The word fundamentally means deliverance. And it means to be made whole and to be preserved. So, so what is it that me and you got to be preserved and delivered from. Scripture paints four descriptive sort of images of that. First one is this. Salvation means deliverance from being lost. Look at Matthew chapter 18. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that's straying? This is the way my simple kind of brain processes this image of lostness that the scripture paints. I kind of see a man, particularly myself, in the forest of life trying to get somewhere and, and, I, and I just can't find the way, right? I'm in this forest and with every stumble and every trip, I hit a rock or I hit some branches and I get cut up and there's lions and tigers and bears out there and, and so, this, so I'm lost and I'm, and I'm continuing. If I continue through all of this junk in the woods, then, the, then all of that is just going to suck the very life out of me. And man's only hope, y'all, is to find somebody, for somebody to notice that he's lost and to start looking for him. And y'all, that's where the gospel of salvation just steps up to the plate. 
God sees man's lostness and sends his son to seek and to save him. So salvation means first, deliverance from being lost, and then second, it's, it means deliverance from sin. Speaking to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, <clears throat> about Jesus' birth, an angel of the Lord says uh, to him in Matthew chapter 1, and she, she Mary, will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their what? From their sins. Salvation means deliverance from that, from mistakes, from, from jacked up thoughts, from messed up ideas, from moral impurity, from anger, from hate, from all of it. Whatever it is, all of it, salvation means deliverance from all of that sin. Y'all, sin is like a disease that man has no cure for. Did you hear what I said? That man has no cure for. Sin is like a master that, that puts you in slavery and they absolutely just got this death grip on you. And man's only hope is for somebody to discover a cure. Somebody with the smarts and somebody with the love and somebody with the power to do it. And so here again, the gospel of salvation jumps in. He knows all about the infection. He knows all about the disease. He knows all about the enslavement. And he sends his son to save man to cure man, to liberate man. And salvation frees us from the burden of guilt and shame, and it replaces that, uh, that burden with a deep sense of health and peace with God. Are you in here today, and you feel this heaviness, this heavy, crushing burden that's just like sitting on top of you and you can't breathe this burden of guilt and shame y'all the gift of salvation reaches down and lifts it off and throws it in the hooch and says you'll never have that again if you feel that way understand that thought so salvation is deliverance from sin and then third it is deliverance in the future of all evil and corruption. At the end of the day, salvation delivers us from God's wrath when it's all said and done. Our bodies and our souls are redeemed and we're preserved. We're saved from being eternally separated from God, from wasting away, from, from dying and being condemned to hell. It is a gift, y'all, of eternal life and it is given to believers at, at the final victory of Christ. Look at what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, according to his great mercy, God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Y'all, we've got an inheritance. What's that inheritance look like? Peter says that it is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading, and it's wrapped up, and it's kept in heaven waiting for you, who by God's power, again, his power, you're being guarded through faith for a what? Just for nothing? No, but for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we're delivered from God's wrath. Number four, finally, salvation means deliverance from enemies and dangers. We are, this is the fourth image that scripture paints a little bit. We're pictured as walking through a world where enemy after enemy, y'all in danger after danger, are lurking and hiding and behind every corner. 
And ultimately, we, have, we do have to confront all kinds of trials and all kinds of difficulties and all kinds of, of problems and temptations, and we are helpless at overcoming all of that on our own. Even as hard as we try, and we're running and we're trying and we're fighting, in our own strength, Scripture paints an image of our helplessness. Praise the Lord that God's not helpless. Y'all, we don't serve a helpless God. We serve a God full of dunami, full of power. And he can save you, and he can save me, and he can deliver me and you as we walk down these roads of life. And his grace, praise the Lord, his grace is sufficient, y'all. He can deliver us from the enemies and from the dangers that wage war against us every day. Don't you know that the devil is trying to kill you? But you and you can't fight him on your own, y'all. But we don't serve a helpless God. But you got to understand that salvation does not mean that he will deliver you from experiencing difficulties and dangers in life. He does not promise to provide me and you a trouble-free life. He does not promise to provide me and you a life where there's no bumps and bruises along the way, but salvation offers us a way through the difficulties and dangers of life. It is a false gospel if somebody preaches to you Come to the cross and get saved and your life's going to be a bed of roses till the day Jesus brings you home. That is a lie from hell, y'all, I'm telling you. That is not what scripture says. But it provides us a way through because then we can lean on the right one, right? So salvation means that, that God provides me and you with peace and security no matter what comes our way. He gives me safety that's independent of my circumstances. He provides me with inner strength and courage to weather the storms that come along. Y'all, his salvation um, restores my brokenness. There's restoration wrapped up in that. And it makes me whole again. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he's talking about himself. He said, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with my weaknesses, my insults, my hardships, my persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the amazing, beautiful benefits of the salvation that is available to us, Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel because it is a glorious, majestic display of God's power. Y'all, I heard a story about a super rich guy. He had died. His estate was full of magnificent, very expensive uh, pieces of art. Extremely, extremely valuable works of art. And this dude had a son, and his son had died before him. And it was a son whom he loved, loved, loved. And this son would have been his only heir. It was his only son, and he loved his son. And so shortly after this rich dude died, uh, they had a public auction for all of these valuable pieces of art, you know. He had uh, Van Goghs and Rembrandts and all the famous artists. And folks came from all over the world to this auction. In fact, 
over a thousand people were there for the auction. And so the auctioneer begins the auction by, uh, by offering up for sale uh, a portrait that was painted by the man's son, the deceased man's son. And it really wasn't anything special. It was pretty simple painting, right? It wasn't like all the other expensive pieces of art. Artistically, most would say it was really not even that good. But it was a painting that the son made of the father. Um, most would say it just wasn't even that good. Now, even as plain and simple as it was, the son did capture perfectly the essence of the father. Think about that. The son captured the very essence of the father perfectly. So the floor opens up for bids, and, but there weren't any bids on this simple portrait. After what seemed like an awkward silence, this old man comes walking down the aisle, and as he got near the front, the auctioneer recognized him, and he had been the groundskeeper for the, for the rich guy. And the, and the groundskeeper man, he kind of shamefully almost offered up a couple dollars that he had in his pocket for this child-drawn portrait of the father. And the auctioneer bangs his gavel down, and he says, Sold! And the thousand-plus people in the room, they're like, they're ready now. They're ready for the main part of the selling so all of the crazy, unbelievable art could be sold and they could bid on this valuable stuff. But much to their chagrin and to their surprise, the auctioneer hit the gavel down again and he said, auction over. And they're all like, what are you talking about auction over? They're all confused. How can the auction be over? But the auctioneer went on to explain and he said this, in the will of the master, the instructions very specifically said to first offer the painting drawn by the son, and that whosoever gets, gets the painting of his son gets the entire art collection. The master, y'all, had decided way in advance, way in advance that whosoever loved his son and accepted his son could not only have his son's work, but all the benefits that belong to the father. Y'all, that is the gospel. And the crazy thing about being a Christ follower is it is an exclusive club that is available to anybody. Anybody can join it, but it is an exclusive club. It's open to everybody. All of us have access to, quote, the benefits. Salvation is available to all of us. And this salvation will deliver you from being lost. It will deliver you from sin. It will hold you and deliver you from God's wrath at the end of days. It'll provide you with a way through, like through the storms of life. Y'all, it will usher you into an eternity with the Lord. And so look, let today, like let today be the day that you say yes to that. If you, and if you're watching, if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook or whatever, like, let today, and you've never said yes, let today be the day. Because it is an exclusive club, but everybody can join. There's no other, there's nothing else like that, right? And it is a display of the steadfast, unfailing love of God for you and his limitless power. And so let today be the day that you say, you know what? Yes, that you repent you turn away from the sin and you believe that he died on that cross to save you and you just ask him to save you. And the answer is yes. If you ask earnestly, the answer is yes 100% of the time. 
And so if that's you today, I want you just to kind of track along with me. Scream it out loud. If you want to come down to the cross, come down to the cross. If y'all can turn the lights down a little bit. Come down to the cross or stay in your seat. And if you're at home, just get on your knees in humility before the Lord. Lord, today is the day that I repent of my sin. Lord, today is the day that I ask you to save me, that I, that I acknowledge your love and your power. So Lord, let today be the day that I say yes to you. Save me. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.